We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello and welcome, dear listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. Back again for another episode. We're up to 366. Joe, the tech guy, how are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm well. I'm Trevor, the Iron Fist. I was talking to somebody yesterday who thought I was the Velvet Glove. And I said, no, that's Scott. So I should clarify, I'm Trevor, the Iron Fist, because I've got these hard opinions that come out occasionally. (laughs) Oh, dear. All right. Yes, episode 366. I should have mentioned last week, episode 365, there's one for every day of the year. So mm. if, you want a, if you want a bit of Iron Fist Velvet Glove, you can have a new episode every day for an entire year. If you catch up on the back catalogue, it's all there. Right. Tonight, it's a mixed bag of stuff. I think on my promo piece that I put out, I said from Kanye to East Timor, just one of the difficulties with this show, Joe, is it's such a random hodgepodge of different topics that we go through. It's very hard to identify what the damn podcast is about. It's a lot of things. General news and stuff. Yeah, and stuff. So there will be initially stuff about Australian news and politics. By the way, I've been putting chapter marks on these podcasts for the last couple of weeks. So if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or through a half-decent podcast app, you should see chapter marks and if you want to skip through segments and or you want to repeat a segment, you can do that. So Australian news and politics to begin with, Brittany If you Higgins. want to play a segment for your friends. Yes, you could do that too. Mm. Makes it easy for them. Brittany Higgins, Julia Banks, more about crazy Christians. Governor General's wife will have another song. There'll be a trigger warning just before that. Morrison was censored. Catholic hospitals, actually, that's a lengthy one about just what is going on in so-called public hospitals that are observing Catholic principles and making life difficult for women. And then we'll move on. Putin's poop, Trump's tax return. Kanye. Joe, did you see Kanye on the... Isn't um, he just yay now? Just yay. Did you Mm. see him on Alex Jones's... I had to stitch together a few clips. I have to admit I burst out laughing as I was doing it at different times, it was a very funny. If you, you've just was was he intending view. to be funny? No, you've got to take the view. He's obviously mentally disturbed. He's not running on all cylinders. And so I'm just prepared to cut him slack as being not, not fully mentally capable in actual mm-hmm. fact. But the funny part is Alex Jones trying to tone somebody down. Right. And yeah, try, trying to stop him from embracing the neo-Nazi quite so much. Exactly. Yeah. But he just keeps jumping in. In fact, uh, not even, even neo-Nazi, just pure <laughs> Nazism. And, and just the frustration and dismay on Alex Jones, it really is, it's interesting. We'll get through a few other things. We'll end up in the Timor Gap, in the Timor Sea there. So that's the plan. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Watley's there. And anyone else who's in the chat room, say hello. Let us know that you're there, Joe. Terrible situation with Brittany Higgins and the trial being aborted because somebody on the jury was bringing in 
mm-hmm. external matter. And they've decided for her mental health, it's no point in pres- – well, it's just not – it's dangerous from a health point of view for her to continue with the trial. Mm-hmm. So terrible situation. But uh, – and you can't really talk too much about it because if you get into the woods on that, chances of defaming – what's his name? Bruce Lerman – too high, so we won't get into too much about what happened. Steer clear of that. Yeah, I mean, I just think there's a lot of backlash that's, it doesn't matter that he hasn't had a trial, he's guilty as all hell. Hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking the man deserves a fair trial, everyone deserves a fair trial. Uh, and if he's prosecuted and convicted, fine. But until that happens, and if that can't happen because of her mental health, well, that's a very sad thing. It's um, unsatisfactory all round. Yes. yes. Very. So, you know, it's sort of, I guess what you could say is could there be some facility? She's already given her evidence. She's being cross-examined. Surely at some level that could all best be replayed for a new jury to some extent. Yeah, I think it would only be transcripts, wouldn't it? It's not oh, going to be recorded. Well, you know. Maybe it should. Maybe this sort of thing is a case that shows that evidence perhaps should have been recorded and and basically that evidence presented to a fresh jury in a recorded format. I don't know. but I, I, Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been recent cases where there has been a lot of media attention up front and cameras were in the courtroom. Mm. And it was quite fortunate because what the media, what the press were reporting didn't reflect what actually went on in the courtroom. Right. And, and I think more and more people are going, for justice to be done, justice needs to be seen to be done. And we do deserve to have access to this. Mm. And not just for those who can take the time off work, travel to the court and sit in the public gallery. Mm. Normally cases like this, uh, you know, the evidence is not disclosed, but I think... She waived her right to that yeah, in I mean, this case. Quite often there's mm. certain aspects of the evidence, mm. basically sensitive aspects that would be held in camera, mm. as in with nobody in, the, uh, nobody in the public area. But I think that a lot of the surrounding evidence. Yeah, because you quite enjoyed tuning in on the Johnny Depp trial and following all that. So you like the idea of being able just to log on and watch a trial. Like I, I, I think we've come to realise that there are vested interests driving narratives mm. and they don't necessarily reflect on what's, what's actually happening. And I think it's important to be able to see, to, to look at the underlying evidence yourself because, unfortunately, you're supposed to be able to trust the press to report accurately. And I know in the UK they have a legal obligation I presume they do over here. Um, and, and possibly it was less around the reporting and more around the op-eds. But, um, yes, unsatisfactory all round and maybe worth looking at some solutions where evidence is recorded mm-hmm. and replayed either in front of a jury or perhaps in a situation like this, a fresh trial with no jury, just a judge and uh, as a way of getting a resolution where if there's a problem with a jury not being able to fully get a grip of 
what happened, then perhaps a judge can be relied on. I don't know. Yeah. It, well, we have we have a legal right to a, a trial of your peers. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no easy solution on that one. Anyway, Mike Carlton and Crikey were talking about one aspect of Bruce Lerman, unrelated to uh, mm-hmm. the allegation, was that he was a senior advisor to Defence Industries Minister Linda Reynolds. Allegedly, he was on $200,000 a year. He was 23 and he hadn't finished his degree. So he was just an unqualified 23-year-old in the Defence Minister's office earning 200000 a year. Amazing. And expensive town, Canberra. What's that? It's, a, it's an expensive town, Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from Crikey. According to his police interview, he'd been working with the coalition government since 2013 election. That made him just 18 when he stepped into Canberra's halls of power. In March 2019, when he allegedly raped Higgins... He was working in the office of Senator Linda Reynolds. He was 23 and he was a senior advisor. He told police he was Reynolds' most senior staffer at 23. And he said, I was in the WhatsApp group chat with all the other chiefs of staff, including John Kunkel from the PM's office. His ministerial role involved everything from liaising with your commissioner at the Australian Federal Police, ASIO, handling estimates processes, as well as parliamentary policy, national security. He had relevant security clearances to deal with that, including signing for ASIO briefs and the Home Affairs briefs. And at the bar, at the dock bar where he'd been invited for drinks on the night of the alleged incident, there'd been individuals who he recognised as aide-de-camp the various ministers and it was basically a shindig attended by defence officials, full of defence contractors or wannabe defence contractors. An alcohol fuel night unfolded. All the movers and shakers, Lerman says, were very keen to make themselves known to him. A lot of these people were wanting to introduce themselves. And he also, explaining the apparently mystical job of ministerial advisor to police, he said he understood the gravity of his role, among other things, he had been working on the submarine issue, a likely reference to the multi-billion dollar French naval group contract which was going pear-shaped at the time and he prepared question time briefs. Joe, I've been banging on about the submarines for seven and a half years. No wonder the whole thing is a mess. We've got 23-year-olds running the show. Mm-hmm. Like, look, he doesn't... According to his resume, it's, I mean, it's possible for a 23-year-old to be some brilliant person, potentially, I guess. It'd be a pretty rare egg. But, gee, your lack of life experience. I remember what a dill I was at 23. Like, to be thought that you'd be put in some responsible position like this, with so little experience about life, it's just... You'd been there for five years. What more so, do you need? Yeah. Just, just, no wonder the decision-making is as poor as it has been when you've got young pups of 23 with no qualifications running the show. I, I do wonder, though, the 200K, how many hours they actually work for that. Crazy hours, no doubt. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. We you know, we we hear these figures banded around, mm. and then you actually look at it, and it's eighty-hour weeks. So they're mm. they're effectively working two jobs. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's like we've got an advertisement popped up, Joe. <laughs> uh-huh. So Roman in the chat room says there are lots of people like him working in ministerial offices. When I was in a Victorian public servant, when I was a Victorian public servant, we used to call them the Pointy Shoe Brigade. So there we go. All right, just on the submarines, Australia, under this new Labor government, is, seems to be still keen on buying American nuclear submarines. And I saw this tweet from a guy that said, let's just cut out the middleman. Australia's nuclear submarines should be built in the US, crewed by US Navy soldiers, paid for by US taxpayers, based in the US and sail under the US flag. That's a good idea. Just cut out the middleman. Right, Julia Banks former Liberal MP. So when the marriage equality legislation was passed in 2017, she was one of the few, one of seven MPs who voted for it without any amendment. A Liberal Joe in the sense of an old-fashioned Liberal. liberal. Yes. Yes. Mm. So that was in 2017, marriage equality. And soon after, in 2018... She says in this article in the New Daily, it seemed that the floodgates had been opened as new Liberal members started entering my electorate and social media research revealed that many of them were self-declared Pentecostalists, Mormons, or from minor right-wing parties such as Family First. The resurgence in membership coincided with rumours swirling that members of the religious right were mobilising to challenge me and other moderates at the upcoming pre-selections ahead of the 2019 federal election. So which electorate was this? She's in Victoria. So, yep, a federal seat in Victoria. In March 2018, the Victorian State Council meeting reminded her of an image of Morrison that surfaced when he was raising his hands at a prayer gathering of Pentecostalists. But the State Council meeting wasn't held in a church, but it just reminded her of being in a church. She said... Busloads of people arrived. Some of the party faithful, like me, were shocked at these arrivals. I asked one of my fellow moderate colleagues who they were. And he answered, the Mormons, Pentecostalists, the religious right, you know, the stacks, which was short for branch stacked members. Like school kids on an excursion, they were all handed a cardboard lunchbox of sandwiches, which were reserved for these bus passengers only. And as if in exchange for a lunch and a free bus ride, their vote was intended to ensure that the right-wingers of the party were elected to all the important positions. Fast forward to 2022, and she says the Victorian Liberal Party's state election campaign was dominated by attacks and negativity bolstered by the Murdoch press. You shocked Um, me. Yeah. And she said, yet every day we were learning that the Liberals had pre-selected or preferred racist, misogynists, the ultra-religious, homophobes or anti-vaxxer, climate, den- climate deniers. So so there we go, confirmation of all the things we've been saying. And uh, she was at a Liberal Party conference and just busloads of them arriving with a pre-packed lunch bag. Who are these people? Yeah. <clears throat> There's no hope for the Liberal Party. They're done and dusted. They, um, they 
it has to be said they're better at organising than we, the secularists, are. They are indeed. They know all about teamwork. So, look, just speaking of crazy religion people, content warning, <laughs> the Governor-General's wife, this latest one, they're popping up everywhere. I, I really want to see one of her hula hooping while reading the Bible. I haven't seen any video of that. If somebody can see it, let me know. But on her this own one, fans? Mm, yeah, I don't know about that. And this one, she's in a coffee shop she, and basically just accosts the people in the coffee shop and forces them to get up and, and start singing. And, of course, uh, you know what the tune will be. I got someone else in mind. My sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are grey. I'll stop there. It goes yes. on. <laughs> she makes people sing three verses. In the middle verse, you have to f look at the person beside you and you face each other and you sing to each other in a very personal way. And then in the third verse, it's back to we're all part of a group and, and all the rest. So, so hey, Joe, do you want to put the chat back up on the screen or, or is it, it disappeared? Yeah, it should be fine. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, that was the Governor General's wife. You're not even safe in a coffee shop. She'll start a sing-along. Reminds me of the happy clappers on the plane. You remember that video? Yes. It was like a hostage a tour, situation. tour group and they yeah. started firing up with their guitar and mm -hmm. plane had to put up with it. Yeah. Yes. I think Shane had some ideas of what, what she would have done as cabin crew on that flight. So <laughs> Depressurise uh, the plane? And yeah. Yeah. Limit the number of oxygen masks. Yeah. So, okay, Scott Morrison, he was censored, censured in Parliament and I think actually... Surely censured I'm, rather than censored. Yeah, censured. And let me find the clip. One of the things about listening to Scott Morrison is these days it's so nice when you hear his voice and you think, thank God we don't have to listen to that every night anymore. On the news. So here is a little bit of what he had to say when he was being hauled over the coals for secretly signing up for different ministries. But if there was one line in the speech today by the man now known in Parliament simply as the member for Cook that drew audible gasps from those present, it was this. Had I been asked about these matters at the time at the numerous press conferences I held, I would have responded truthfully about the arrangements. I had put in place. Are there any other portfolios that you assumed any control over? Not to my recollection, Ben. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing that. So health, finance, resources. That, that is my understanding. But if that, if that is, if there is anything different to that, then I'm, you know, then I'm, I'm happy for that to be disclosed. So, so two things. Had I been asked about the secret things I was, and, do, I was doing, totally truthful. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's your fault for not asking me about the things that I was keeping secret. Mm -hmm. And then enough evidence to show even when it all blew up, he couldn't, he, did, he claimed to not know which ones he was, a, he'd signed up for anyway. So even if somebody did say, are you secretly signing yourself up as a minister in different capacities? He would have gone, oh, I don't know. I'll get back to you. What classic Scott Morrison didn't. Yeah did not pass muster with anybody. So 
But, you know, when you do hear him talk and you think, oh, thank God, I don't have to put up with that anymore. So that's Scott Morrison. Hello to Alison, who's just joined us in the chat room as well. There we go. Well, you know, he did do one thing with these special ministries. He he cancelled that gas drilling off the coast of Sydney. Not because he's necessarily against gas drilling. It's just that it was a particular electorate that he was keen to shore up. And that's going to end up in court one day. The drilling company behind that is going to say, hang on a minute, the minister that we thought was responsible was willing for us to go ahead and it turned out the minister that we didn't know anything about was the one who decided that we weren't going to be allowed to drill. So that will end up in court one day, see what happens. And it was a pathetic conga line of Liberal MPs who then walked past Morrison as they exited the Parliament House and shook his hand and patted him on the bat and said, good on you, Scott, we're still your friend. It was just pathetic. What a rabble. What an absolute rabble. So that was Scott Morrison and we're nearly done with religious stuff. Just got one more for you. I really like these guys talking heads and I'll just play you something because we've got uh, lots of Christmas things happening around the place you might be invited to carols by candlelight at your local school or 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 maybe even a nativity play so if you are watching a nativity play keep this one in mind colin from portsmouth is on the line hello colin i am disgusted absolutely disgusted what's happened now colin my grandson's primary school are doing their nativity yep. play right but the right, school's gone yeah. woke of course oh no not another school gone woke what are they doing colin they Well, that is the nativity story, isn't it, Colin? That's quite accurate. Oh, you'd love it if the Bible told us to be nice to refugees, yeah. wouldn't you? That would suit your Ramona agenda down to the ground. Mm. They're brainwashing our kids. And Rishi Greenfinger's Sunak Greenfinger. is doing nothing. What role is your grandson playing, Colin? What part? The donkey. Oh, the donkey. That's lovely. It's the biblical version of a small boat crossing the channel. Right. I'm going to tell him on the day. Mm. Son, you refuse to take him. Yeah. Show a bit of backbone. Unlike this woke tofu-eating mafia mm. we call the UK, tell Gary Bloody Lineker yeah. and James O'Brien Will we do. are not rolling over. Where is a Herod when you need one, Colin? Well, you say what you like about one of the most tyrannical rulers in the ancient world, but at mm. least he'd bring in ID cards. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Anthony, thanks for having me on. Love to the family. Love to the family, Colin. Love to the family. That stable's far too good for him. Where's a Herod when you need one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're good. James had a good comment in the chat room. He said, will the drilling company's complaint be that they should be compensated for lobbying fees for the hours spent lobbying the wrong minister? That's good, James. I like that one. That is good. Yeah, nativity plays. And, yeah. All right, Catholic hospitals. This is from the ABC. This is a long article, but it's it's very instructive. And, you know, we bang on about schools a lot with religious instruction lessons, Mm -hmm. and we bang on about chaplains. But we probably don't bang bang on enough about what's going on in hospitals. So Hospitals and nursing homes both, I think. Yeah. So, okay. It began with a simple request from a patient, an interuterine device, IUD. I wrote up the report for her GP, recounts the patient's doctor. 
who worked at one of Australia's public, public Catholic hospitals. But then I was called over by my supervisor who told me to change the wording and say that we were supplying the IUD for acne rather than birth control. And uh, the doctor was shocked at the first time this sort of thing had ever happened. And on the surface, the hospital is an ordinary public hospital in a big city, but like 20 other public hospitals around the country, it's run by a Catholic code of ethics. Is that an oxymoron, Joe? Code Catholic of ethics? Code of, a Catholic code of ethics? I think you can have a code of ethics even if it doesn't align with other people's. Right, okay. You just can't have a good Catholic code of ethics, perhaps. Well, yeah. This code, which applies to both public and private Catholic hospitals, advises against contraception, pregnancy termination, IVF, voluntary assisted dying, and even the provision of abortion medication to rape victims. In sexual and reproductive health matters, the responsibility of Catholic health care is to give counsel which is both medically accurate and to witness to the teachings of Christ and his church so the code says so workers have to speak anonymously for fear of losing their job and confirm that workarounds are widespread and one of them said how time consuming and embarrassing it was to have to ask GPs to rewrite IUD referrals so that they're not for birth control but for something like a heavy period so a lot of the records are completely false. And there's so much fudging of documentation, it's difficult to see what's going on in the health system. All the data is meaningless. There's a Melbourne woman, Leslie. She had precancerous cells lasered off her cervix, which meant removing her copper IUD. But when she asked for it to be replaced, the hospital could only offer a hormonal IUD, as they can be used to treat heavy periods. And she didn't want a hormonal IUD because she'd had a bad reaction in the past. She wanted a copper one. So in order to get a copper IUD inserted, she had to bring it herself Mm -hmm. another day. Around 10% of hospitals in Australia are Catholic run. But for maternity and gynaecological care, they're some of our most influential players. And uh, there was a Melbourne mum who was having excruciating menstrual periods and this was happening sort of 12 days out of 18, very, very painful. The doctor proposed a procedure called endometrial ablation that could end her period forever, which would be great. The only problem was if she happened to fall pregnant, it would be extremely dangerous. But she didn't mind. The doctor said she should get her tubes tied as a precaution. That way you won't fall pregnant while you have this condition. And she was happy because she'd finished having children. And normally it would all be done in one operation, get the endometrial ablation and get your tubes tied at the same time. But guess what? The Catholic hospital said, no can do. You'll have to have two separate surgeries at two different hospitals. And so she's a single mum. She'd have to find care for her children. She'd have to recover twice. And there's always the risk, Joe, in operations, Mm -hmm. anaesthetic and all the rest of it. You don't undergo two operations if you can do it in one hit. It's not good practice. No. So eventually, behind the scenes, to get around this, they had to get another surgeon into the operating theatre. So one did the ablation and the other one tubes. The tubal ligation. Yes. They, they just changed over during the middle of the operation. Mm-hmm. How crazy. There's stories in this 
about women with the problem with the fetus where they need to have something done urgently, but the hospital's kind of saying, well, while there's a heartbeat, we're going to not do anything until the mother is in real serious life-threatening trouble, even though we know that is going to happen. It's just a matter of days and stories of staff having to say to women, check yourself out of here and go to the hospital down the road because we can't do anything for you and you're going to get really sick and this hospital is not going to treat you until you're really sick. It's insane, Joe. There was an Indian woman in Dublin who died for mm. a pair in the last couple of years. Yes. Because they refused to give her an abortion. Yes. Until she was septic. Yeah. Because the fetus had died. It was dead and rotting inside her and they wouldn't abort it. It must have still had a heartbeat of some sort, did it? I don't know. I'm not, I, I can't remember the details, mm. but I do remember mm. that. Yeah. Yes. So, so a series of just horror stories of this type in this article, it's in the show notes, which all the patrons get. And, of course, you know, the junior doctors in the system don't get experience in dealing with procedures that they should be getting experience with because the hospital is avoiding these things. And uh, it's a frightening tale of what's going on in these hospitals. And we're supporting these hospitals with taxpayer money and it's just going on so well i mean wasn't it perth mm. the only public hospital in town is a catholic hospital and they actually had to build a separate unit with a separate entrance round the back to provide medical care that the catholic hospital wouldn't provide mm. so it was terminations and i'm not sure what else yeah yeah so there's a group, Children by Choice, take calls from women all over Queensland. Mm -hmm. And apparently in Brisbane, there's a problem if you're on the south side because the majority of hospitals on the south side are operating under this Catholic code of ethics. And what they're having to do in many cases is help women fudge their address to be a north side address so they can go to the Royal Hospital Brisbane. on the north side to get treatment because the south side is such a mess. What insanity. We've got a Labor state government who, full of women at who, the top. Who handed over the martyr children yeah. to the, well, sorry, they decided to build a new children's hospital on martyr grounds. Mm. And I believe there's some deal that after happening, yeah, Whatever it is, 99 years, they hand the whole thing back to the, the Martyr Hospital. Right. Yep. So Wouldn't it's currently it. run by Queensland Health. Yep. But at the end of that lease, it's handed back to them. Yeah. Well, so I think in over. the uh, secular world, I know that, you know, the Rationalist Association are doing a lot with prayers in Parliament and the schools. Mm -hmm. You just don't make enough noise about the hospital system. And it's the next frontier, I think. So let me see. Oh, just in Victoria. Sorry, you want to say something? I was going to say, I actually go to the Marta for my Crohn's mm. and they've been excellent. But, but I'd rather it was a state-run facility than Indeed. A, a, a religious facility that happens to get government funding to look after me. Indeed, yeah. Fiona Pat in Victoria. So 
For the past eight years, she's represented the northern suburbs of Melbourne, home to the St Vincent's Hospitals. And many of the women zoned to the Mercy Hospital for Women. And earlier this year, she introduced a bill that would stop public Victorian public hospitals from refusing procedures on religious grounds. Her bill did not affect the right for individual healthcare workers to refuse to provide services if it went against their conscience. It just stopped hospitals having blanket bans. But it was voted down by the Dan Andrews government. Ms Patton believes the government did not want to attract controversy so close to an election. That's disappointing. Yeah, well, hopefully they can revive it now that he's convincingly won. Yes, hopefully. Ah, so it's quite a long and lengthy article from ABC News, but Um, worth reading. It was the Catholic ethicist who says that Fiona's bill was undemocratic and undesirable. So apparently democratic is funding private institutions to enforce their rules on public patients. Yeah. Yep. Right, just briefly back on um, the Liberals in the Victorian election, there was an article by Peter, Peter Credlin in The Australian and there was just one sentence that stuck out, which was, the problem with the Liberals' main election pitch to spend $20 billion more on hospitals and to cut all public transport fares to just $2 was that it didn't particularly reflect Liberal values. Large L Liberal, not small L Liberal. Yes. So the problem was didn't, the, the policy didn't reflect... They, they were too kind to the poor people. Exactly. Yeah. And that doesn't reflect the Liberal Party. Mm. Maybe the problem was, yeah. Yeah, it's obvious. Okay, National Anti-Corruption Commission. So um, one's been established now. Passed through the Parliament, bit of haggling at the end, but on the whole seems to be a pretty good result. We've been asking for a federal ICAC for a long time. You have, Joe, mm-hmm. one of your favourites. Yeah, yeah. And a fairly broad jurisdiction. They can make findings, refer stuff to the DPP and initiate their own investigations as well as respond to whistleblowers are able to investigate potential wrongdoing and stuff that occurred retrospectively. Yeah, that's the critical one, isn't it? Mm. Although referring people off to the AFP, which Mm. it's been alleged is just a puppet of the Liberal Party. Well, it's still the Federal Police. Director of Public Prosecutions, I mean... DPP is different, but yeah. Yeah, so either one, I guess. Yes, retrospective stuff, that will be interesting. I'm going to talk a bit later about Australia's behaviour regarding East Timor and in particular Alexander Downer and some of the stuff that happened. And the persecution of people who brought that to the subject, public's attention? Yes, and, you know, the benefits that flowed to certain oil companies and then the people who ended up getting jobs with those same oil companies would be very fertile ground for a group like this. So the retrospective one's great. They'll be busy... For years. If you're a young lawyer <laughs> and you want a job for the next 20 years, sign up for that one. Although didn't famously, oh, what was the 
Queensland's anti-corruption. I don't know what the name of it was. No, no, the inquiry. Oh, you mean following James uh, Fitzgerald? Yes, yes. Didn't Fitzgerald say he would never do such a thing again? It, it took such a toll on him. Yes, yeah. Mind you, he was getting on and it was a big job and he was the head of it, but yeah. There's plenty of work there is what I'm saying. It's a boom industry. Yes. So the problem, if there is a problem, is that the power to hold public hearings is only under exceptional circumstances when they are in the public interest. And given what you said earlier, Joe, about wanting to see all sorts of criminal trials yep. available online. Justice um, needs to be seen to be done. Hmm. Yep. So... It should be the other way around where it's going to be public unless there's a very, very good reason why it shouldn't be, I would have thought. Yep. Because of some national, national security, security interest. Yep. Yeah. Which should be determined by somebody independent. Anyway, that's a good result except for that minor part, but, you know, you can't have everything, I guess. So, yeah. They've got a few, you know, if they did nothing else in their first six months, the Labor Party just sort of getting that done... Not bad. Yeah, yeah. Add to it, they actually got a meeting with Ping, our premier trading partner, and a few other things they've been up to, but they've done okay. Still lots more they could do. Do you hear the rumour that that Russian President Putin pooped his pants? Son of a well, apparently, Scott. you know, all, all great world leaders. <laughs> Seems to be a thing, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Tweet by emergency and bushfire kits said that it may not have happened, but if it did, I think it was on the bed that Trump pissed on for a full circle of dictator feces and urine gross fuck weaselry. So, yeah, I, I thought I thought it was the prostitutes that pissed on the bed, not Trump. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, <sighs> speaking of Putin. There's a battle going on in the UK over nurses' wages. Nurses want a pay increase. And you're thinking, yes. well, what's that got to do with Putin? And uh, a cabinet minister in the UK parliament said, nurses must drop their pay demands to send a clear message to Putin that we're not going to be divided in this way. That's one of the arguments. Why Has he come from the 1970s? One of the Cause, arguments. Because the Soviet Union used to prop up the labour movements. Right. So historically that was the talking yeah. point that the, the unions were stooges for Russia. Yeah. So I wonder this if this is just a leftover from the Cold War. I don't, it's a slightly different argument. Well, he, he's just grasping at straws when he's saying... Probably. We want to send a, moon, a message to Putin. See how tough we are? We can even deny nurses a reasonable wage increase, so you better not cross us. Yeah. He is, I believe the English term is a cockwomble. Yeah. He was doing it to show unity, basically. Look at us, Putin. We'll deny nurses and they will embrace that denial because we are all, all working together as one against our enemies, including you. That's the argument. Yeah, wow. okay. Trump's tax returns 
So apparently Trump's been hiding these for seven years and they're now been made available and the relevant authorities are working their way through them. And Joe, I said before that, you know, the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission mm-hmm. would be a growth industry. I think people trawling through Donald Trump's tax returns looking for legal work, that's also a growth industry. Can you imagine Probably. what's going to come out of this? Holy smokes. All the payments to the prostitutes to be on the bed. Yes. Would have been claiming them as a tax deduction. Yeah, I reckon. Mm. Business expense. Yeah. Right. You didn't see... I'm going to keep calling him Kanye just because... Is that offensive to just ignore his... Yay. Probably you're you're probably dead naming him. I don't know. I don't know. Kanye, yay. Anyway, he was on the Alex Jones show and he was wearing this weird face mask over his head so you couldn't see him at all. It was like, imagine a balaclava without the eyes and the nose and the mouth cut out. Like, I guess like a giant sock over his head. Imagine that. And um, he's ranting about how good Hitler was. And Alex Jones, even Alex Jones is thinking... I've got to tame this guy back a bit. I've got to help him wind this back. And as you're watching this, towards the end, you'll see this guy Fuentes. Fuentes was the guy I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, another far-right crazy guy, and he's just giggling at this because he's loving it because he's so anti-Semitic. So just as you're listening to this, take into appreciation that Alex Jones is, is kind of the reasonable character in this, and and it's very interesting. I'll play it now. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I I see I I see good things about Hitler. Also, the Jew. I love everyone, and Jewish people are not going to tell me you can love you know us. And you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts. And you can love what we're, you know, what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician, you can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good. And I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. The most Nazi-like activities I've seen, and the Nazis, in my view, were thugs that shook people down did a lot of really bad things. But they did good things, too. We're going to stop dissing the Nazis all the time. Okay. Well, CNN says why people are evil Nazis, so, I mean, I, I, I disagree with both statements, but I get the... Yeah, I, don't, I don't like the word evil next to Nazis. I think we need to look at... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just because you don't like one group doesn't mean the other. But look, look, I fine. love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. <laughs> oh man well i have to disagree with that i don't think hitler was a good guy i get the the hugo boss uniforms amazing but i mean just because you're in love with the design you're a designer can we just kind of say like you like the you like the uniforms but that's about no, it we we know there, there's a lot of things that i love about hitler a lot of things well at least he made the trains run on time wasn't that the old trope? 
He he what? Made the trains run on time. He made the, Hitler made the trains run on time. Yeah, Cameron My, uh, Riley had the saying: "Say what you like about Hitler, but at least he killed Hitler." <laughs> no, that's true. Look, yeah, he's got mental health issues, so his his handlers should be protecting him, but they're not. So. It wasn't him. You didn't see his yeah. face. You can't prove it was him. He wasn't there. Yeah. So it might have been Mussolini who made the trains run on time. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Might have been Mussolini. Well, there'll be mention of Mussolini in a moment. Let me just okay. let me just run through my notes here. So, yeah. So when Alex Jones is a voice of sanity, the conversation has gone into the abyss. And what else did I have on here? So that's you know how America has descended, and yeah, you know, people are trying to explain this and figure it out in America. So there was there's this guy Aiden Ross. He is some sort of YouTuber type guy and he's trying to figure things out and he's thinking, what does fascism mean? And so he Googles while he's online doing a live stream actually and says, uh, so the, the, the relevant part on, on the Googles is fascism is a far-right authoritarian ultra-nationalist political ideology and movement characterised by a dictatorial leader, centralised autocracy, militarism, forcible suppression of opposition. So this guy, though, when he looks this up and is live-streaming it to people and wanting to sort of talk about what is fascism, sees that definition in Wikipedia and here's what he's doing. What does a fascist mean? It means you are a far right authorization on you on ultra does it ultra ultra oh my god ultra analyst analyst political ideology movement characterized by dictator leadership centralized autocracy militarism for forcible suppression suppression of opposition. So I don't know what that means, bro. I swear to God, I don't know what the fuck a fascism is. I don't know what the fuck that is. Benito Mazzulli and Giviante Genitale and Jason Stanley. Like, who the fuck are these people, bro? Never heard of my fucking life. What is an example of a fascist? Yo! All right, bro. See what I'm saying, chat? Like, this is why I don't fuck with y'all, bro. Like, dude, like, this is what the fuck I don't... Bro, I don't fuck with y'all, bro. The Benito Mussolini reference was to Benito Mussolini, of course. So it's just sort of, you know, when the education level is so poor amongst a large percentage of the population that they can't even Google something and read mm. it because yes. of the poor education level, then you are really behind the eight ball in getting your society to function. So... Now, he's a successful guy making millions of dollars from some social media type of empire he's got, but was to to read some admittedly above-average difficult words, but doesn't come close to pronouncing, let alone understanding. So where does society go to when you're dealing with that? Yeah, I, I think I, don't, I'm, I grew up in the only part of the British Isles that was um, invaded by the Germans. By the Nazis. Right. And so I grew up with the legacies of the Nazi era around and I was very, very aware of it. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my my German teacher at school had worked as a translator during the Nuremberg trials. Mm, right. Which was a good way of getting out of a German lesson was to ask him about a his time teaching at the school during the the, the Nazi occupation, yep. but also about the trials afterwards. Right. Yep. And the teacher would launch into stories. And oh, then, absolutely! It's yeah. fascinating. Would be. Yeah. Very good. So, so I uh, to me, it's astonishing that people could be that far removed from it. But yeah, if it's not that close to home, if you've not, yeah, I, I grew up playing in German bunkers. Right. That had been built with slave labour. Yes. Wow. So, 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 yeah. To me, it's very close to home. Yeah. There you go. Learn something every day about you, Joe. So, here's another clip. So, The Young Turks is a Oof, program yes. where they discuss things going on, and what you'll hear is a lady on The Young Turks basically bemoaning what Kanye's saying. But there is a, a this guy Vincent James, who's an anti-Semitic white nationalist, another influencer. So this is the sort of stuff going on in America. The sort of commentary people are hearing. Those of you who, like me, have a problem with Christianity are going to love this thing at the end. Here we go. Uh, I'll play this one. I mean, they're parading around literally a mentally ill person who is spewing the most vicious anti-Semitic garbage about a man who slaughtered millions of people, slaughtered them. I like, that's what he said, he said that he liked them. I just, he did some great things. What did he do that was so great? I just can't, I can't with these people. What's worse, slaughtering one person, slaughtering millions of people or a group of people slaughtering Jesus Christ? There you go. Trust a Christian to explain things, Joe. Yeah. Or just an maybe you're just an anti-Semite, maybe. Yeah, I mean the the, the mm. problem I have with the Young Turks, other than their political bias, yes, it is the whole of. From what I understand, uh, don't they not believe in the Armenian genocide? I think they named themselves the Young Turks before they understood the Armenian genocide. But, but I'm fairly sure that he's come out and said that he doesn't believe it. Really? I'm sure. I, I think there was a, a political kerfuffle about it. He may have changed since, but right. I thought there was a whole thing about it. Okay. A Holocaust denier. Basically, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Wow. Anyway, what she was saying, even though it was the Young Turks, was perfectly reasonable, of course, mm-hmm. and actually a good point that, this guy's got mental health issues. But, yeah, the commentator was, well, what's worse? Group of people killing Jesus. Ah, it's a state of the world, dear listener. This podcast is getting depressing again. Can I improve things? As long as you don't dig out the Governor General's wife. <laughs> oh. We're living in hard times, much sadness in our day. Look out for one another, in the end we'll be okay. You want to be careful, you might get a copyright strike. Mm-mm. In the end we'll be okay. Sorry in the chat room, should have had a warning. Anyway, can I cheer you up? Oh, well, you know in the UK we have the railway sort of strikes happening mm-hmm. and 
oh, I can't remember the name of the guy in charge of the railway union, but Mick Lynch, I think it is, speaks really well. Mm-hmm. Is it Mick Lynch? Really, really well. Remember, but sounds familiar. Yeah. So different story happening in America, according to Chris Hedges. So back in 1926, there were some severe rail strikes. So back then, the federal government passed the Railway Labor Act to give itself power to impose labor settlements on the rail industry. And this year, the Biden administration used this authority to broker a agreement that would ensure a 24% pay increase by 2024 and an annual $1,000 bonuses and a freeze on rising healthcare costs, but workers would be permitted only one paid personal day and no paid sick leave. So of the 12 unions involved in the deal, four of them representing 56% of the union membership refused to ratify it but it was signed into legislation by Biden anyway, relying on this old 1926 Act. Apparently, the the crewing levels are so bad that they just can't allow people to take time off. And so they're just telling them, no, you're not having any sick days. And there's evidence where people have worked even when they're sick and one guy died because he didn't take time off to get his heart checked when he was having issues because he wasn't entitled to a sick day and subsequently passed away from a heart attack. So President of the United States... Whilst driving a train, that might have changed things. Yeah. President of the United States, of the Democrats, has forced railway workers into an agreement where they are not allowed a single day of sick leave. Mm -hmm. There we go. Not getting any better. Mm. Ah. Chips, Joan, microchips. This is an interesting topic. That micro, these computer chips, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's coming like the oil of of the seventies. Will be these sort of chips. Did I send a, you that article about chip manufacturing? I don't know. It might be the one I'm about to read. Possibly. See if this sounds familiar. So, a former U.S. national security advisor, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. Uh, lent credence to reports that the US will disable Taiwan's semiconductor chip manufacturing capabilities if China attempts to reunify the island with the mainland. Quote, if China takes Taiwan and takes those factories intact, which I don't think we would ever allow, they have a monopoly over chips the way OPEC has a monopoly. Or even more than the way OPEC has a monopoly over oil. O'Brien said. And apparently the US Army War College Press published a paper in 2021 recommending that the US make credible threats to destroy Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, facilities, eliminating the most important supplier of microprocessing chips to China and the world. And this paper was the most highly downloaded paper from the US Army War College and basically suggested a scorched-earth strategy in the event that China actually took action against Taiwan, basically blow up the 
chip manufacturing facilities. Yeah, but that's not, not now. That's only in the case of an attack. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, I wouldn't do it now. I mean, because why do it now when there are other ways of doing it, like creating your own chip manufacturing industry in the United States? And so the US has passed the CHIPS Act, where it's going to provide $280 billion in subsidies to chip manufacturers, as well as technology and research development. $280 billion. That would get you a fair bit of mm-hmm. chip development, I would have thought. So Taiwan's National Security Bureau director, he denied that these sort of the scorched earth policy and he said basically you wouldn't have to do it because he said TSMC's global supply chain is reliant on industrial partners in countries including the Netherlands so they don't need to destroy our factories because if they just sever the supply chain for vital components it'll be enough to hold production. That's a good way of saving your factories, Joe, is to say... But that assumes that China can't provide these critical parts. Are you trying to get these factories blown up, Joe? <laughs> Maybe. So there we go. US Army War College saying, well, if they take Taiwan, let's just blow up the factories. Taiwan saying, you don't have to do that. They'll be useless anyway. I, I watched I mean, the documentary about AMD, the other, the other competitor to Intel, basically. Yes. Uh, and how they hadn't been competitive for many years and suddenly their value has gone up and they've just bought a couple of other chip manufacturing companies that do ju- not just, because they were concentrating on the server and desktop market mm. and they've now gone into the embedded market. So they, they were boasting about Tesla's, most of the chips inside of Tesla are now coming from AMD. Right. Uh, another similar. So embedded as in. And where's uh, AMD, mate? The US. Oh, okay. It's, it's American something or other, I thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, they've, they've definitely been. So it, when PCs became big in the 90s, it, um, it was Intel and AMD. That was the big war. Mm-hmm. And that's why Intel spent so much money advertising their brand. Hmm. I came across something, I don't know if it was a podcast or a YouTube, talking about, I think, the Netherlands, where there's this really high-tech Sorry, advanced micro-devices based in Santa Clara. Okay, there you go. Anyway, it's the, it's the new sort of oil in the sense of the US having a close look and, of course, wanting to impose sanctions on China to restrict their access to the high-quality chip manufacturing equipment and China, of course, will be big enough and strong enough to develop its own manufacturing base, which we've talked about before. Still going around the world, France has banned short domestic flights. So they've banned flights between cities that are linked by a train journey of less than two and a half hours. Which is actually quite a distance given the TGV. Right. But it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, they've got they have got a world class high speed intercity rail network. Mm. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. And they're cracking down on the use of private jets for short journeys as well. And uh, of course, they had to ask permission of the European Commission because 
the I think some sort of aircraft lobby group of some sort complained, but the European Commission gave them approval because it was on environmental grounds. So there we go. That's a good move by France. More of that likely to happen. Right, where are we up to? 836. Okay, oil. We mentioned before about this price cap. Russia said they're not going to accept the price cap. We're just not going to sell it. We're not going to accept your cap. If you don't want the price we suggest, then you're just not going to get it. And the world seems to think that Russia will be compelled to sell it, but I just don't see how that's going to happen. So, Well, they think if they're desperate enough, they'll be trying to raise funds and we'll be selling yes. it to raise funds. Yes. So one of the things coming out of this is um, like the shipping companies are not going to be able to get insurance. So even, say, a country like India or China that might want to buy the oil is going to have problems because the shipping companies will say, we don't have insurance, therefore we can't take the risk of transporting it to you because these insurance companies are bound by these same sort of embargo rules. And nobody else has said this, but I would have thought China would simply say to these shipping companies, we'll insure you. Mm-hmm. I would have thought so. Didn't seem written anywhere, but just seemed to make sense to me that China would simply say to them, you're covered, bring it over, we want some. So didn't seem that hard to me. Or nice ship you've got there, we'll buy it from you and we'll yeah. do it ourselves. Or, or we'll rent it off you for a short period. Yes. And if you ever want to do business in China ever again, you will agree to this. Give us some of your fleet or whatever. Like... I think there are ways around this. I don't see, you know, little countries can't do this. Cuba is stuck. They can't do this. A big country, powerful country like China, it can do it. Or even India. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. See where all that ends up. Meanwhile, I mean, Jim Chalmers, our treasurer, he's sort of making all the right right noises. and uh, But he said... The G7 agreement to cap Russian crude oil at US $60 a barrel will help support stability in global energy markets and ease pressure on prices. He said Russia's invasion of Ukraine has forced up global energy prices and wrought havoc on global energy markets. So Russia's made it clear they're perfectly happy to sell the oil in exactly the way they were, the oil and gas that they were before. It's the buyers who are saying, mm-hmm. we don't want to buy it. But Russia's been saying all along, we want to sell it. Business as usual. doesn't matter that we're at war with Ukraine. We will still sell you this stuff. So Jim Chalmers seems to think that Russia is going to just capitulate to this US $60 a barrel figure. That will be interesting to see how that all pans out. I was looking at some figures in terms of China doesn't run a deficit with many countries. Like China's running surpluses with most countries. But in terms of countries that have a deficit, or China has a deficit with, uh, the first number one is Taiwan, $156 billion. Next is Australia, $92.6 billion. And third, South Korea, $58 billion. Brazil, $55. Japan, $37. Switzerland, $29. 
Saudi Arabia, 24. Saudi Arabia, 24. Oman, 22. Malaysia, 18. Australia, second place, $92 billion. Like, we are in such a mm-hmm. lucky country position to be the second biggest supplier. deficit supplier yeah. to the, the biggest market in the world. Anyway. Maybe we need to be careful. Yes. Before they send gumboats down to us and sell us opium. <laughs> yeah. As we've said before, it's not easy to send a gunboat. Perhaps if there was a risk of China or some other enemy sending enemy warships from Asia to Australia, mm-hmm. then it would have been handy to have a really good ally I don't know, somewhere off the northwest coast of Australia, maybe around East Timor, for example, you know, if we had a great relationship with East Timor, given it's almost the last stopping off point gateway to attacking Australia and it would have been really useful for us. So East Timor. Only if they were attacking the Pilbara. Yes. So, well, you know. I've got to get to the Pilbara and then Australia, haven't I? And then the rest of Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Let me just sort out my notes here because I've got to just fix something on the screen. Let me just bring up because I'm going to assume, dear listener, that maybe you're not familiar with Timor, East Timor on a map and the Timor Gap. So let's put that one up there. So what a sad and sorry tale this one is. Joe, I spent a lot of time criticising the US and other countries for their meddling in the Middle East and meddling in Venezuela and and all the rest of it. Like oil does bad things to the ethics of powerful countries and Australia is no exception when it comes to the way we've treated East Timor. So I'm going to try and give a little synopsis of what happened. But basically in terms of... uh, no, a little timeline here. 1600s, Portuguese invaded... T- Actually, I'm going to just move something across the screen to make it easier for me. Hang on one second. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to get off this mic. Bear with me. It's coming across. Okay. 1600s, Portuguese invades Timor, sets up a trading post. 1749, Timor split following a battle between the Portuguese and the Dutch... So the Portuguese take the eastern half and the Dutch take the western part, which ends up being Indonesia. 1942, Japan invades and up to 60,000 East Timorese are killed and Japan's in control until 1945. So what you had there, because East Timor was colonised by the Portuguese, you had 400 years of Christian colonial administration and intermarriage between locals and Europeans. So they were a much more white man, European-friendly type of people than the rest of Asia. So Australian troops got a lot more help and support in East Timor during the Second World War than we got in any other area in Southeast Asia. It was kind of as, as, as a result of that cultural background of the Portuguese Christian settlement of or colonising of East Timor. 
So, so post-World War II, you've got a lot of decolonisation happening. So the British, the French, the Spanish and the Dutch all lose a lot of territory. But the Portuguese colonies, like East Timor, remained in a kind of a time warp because Portuguese, Portugal had entered the Atlantic Pack in 1949 and had a strategic role within NATO, basically because Portugal had these islands in the Atlantic that were a couple of hours' flight off the coast of Portugal. So Azores? The Azores. Ever been to the Azores, Joe? No. Right. Are they a bit of a hotbed for cryptocurrency now? Sure. But uh, anyway. Not that I've heard of, but maybe. If you're an American military guy and you're wanting to fly your aircraft across the Atlantic with the hope of bombing something in Europe, great place to stop, refuel, catch your breath, and then head off again. So because the Portuguese had that those islands, which is very handy, they kind of held onto their territories longer than the others did because nobody wanted to piss off the Portuguese because they were so strategically vital because of the Azores. So anyway, eventually pressure mounts. In 1961, the UN General Assembly declared Portugal's colonies, including Timor, to be non-self-governing territories. And unfortunately, in Australia, cabinet documents reveal that the Australian government considered Timor could not exist as a viable economic state and it would undoubtedly fall to Indonesia, who would have to control it. But this failed to take into account that actually... Timor had lots of enormous mineral and petroleum resources available and just like those little tiny countries in the Middle East, that could have been East Timor, but Australia didn't want to see it. And even Gough Whitlam, I mean, it's 50 years, Joe, since Gough Whitlam took office in 1975 or what are we celebrating there with Joe? 72 it would have been that Gough Whitlam was elected. And so 50 years, of, yeah. Yes, so there's been a lot of celebration of the uh, the Whitlam government and um, rightly so for a lot of achievements but Gough really was quite happy to allow the Indonesians to take over East Timor so so anyway now Australia suspects and learns and, and and figures out that there's an enormous amount of petroleum valuable stuff under the seabed between East Timor and Australia. And a problem though, if you were to draw a, a line halfway between East Timor and Australia, a median line, then all that lovely petroleum resources are unfortunately on the East Timorese side of that line and none mm -hmm. of it on the Australian side. So that's unfortunate because at first blush you would think the East Timorese should therefore own it. And indeed, Article 6 of a 1958 Geneva Convention says, where the same continental shelf is adjacent to the territories of two or more states whose coasts are opposite each other, the boundary of the continental shelf appertaining to such states shall be determined by agreement between them in the absence of agreement and unless other boundary line is justified by special circumstances the boundary is the median line. So in between that median line and close to the coast of East Timor is a feature called the Timor Trough, which was a, an area of very, very deep water. 
and Australia said, well, we say that the continental shelf finishes at the Timor Trough and therefore the boundary should be there, not the median middle line and therefore all of this wonderful petroleum, these petroleum resources belong to us. And so that's how Australian legislation was drafted when it was granting licences to oil companies to go and explore and see what was there, claiming that we had ownership of the continental shelf that went all the way to the Timor Trough. Anyway, Australia, 1973, signed some treaties with the Indonesians, establishing some seabed boundaries. Of course, the Indonesians weren't aware of exactly how much was there. Now, a lot of this is in Bernard Collery's book, which is called Oil Under Troubled Water. So he goes into great detail about it. I'm just going to give him a sort of an overview here. So some initial treaties signed with Indonesia, which was allowing Australia access to explore and rights to be some sharing of rights with Indonesia in this area that's on essentially the East Timor side of that median line. And anyway, 1975, back in Portugal, there's an anti-fascist revolt. And we all know what a fascist is now because we had that American guy explaining to us what it was when he looked it up on Wikipedia. Anyway, so the Portuguese have become more left-wing and they decide to withdraw from territories like Timor. Locally in Timor, there's a group called Fretlin, which was a, they declared immediately that they were, East Timor was independent and almost immediately Indonesia invaded and claiming that this Fretlin group was a bunch of communists. And so as part of their fight against communism, they had to take over East Timor, killed lots of people. And eventually, let me see, so that was 1975. Eventually, 1999, Suharto resigns. Indonesia and Portugal agree to allow East Timorese to vote on their future. Independence, 78%, it's passed in a referendum. More violence because the Indonesian military had all these great schemes and money-making enterprises happening in East Timor, which they didn't want to give up. Fortunately, Australia came in and convinced them um, guys, the show's over, you really need to move on. So peacekeeping force from Australia, restored order, lots of people still killed along the way. Problem is, really brand new government, leaders had been in jail and pressured by Australia to accept deals that the Indonesians had cut with Australia, which were bad deals, and... Uh, young country, no money at all, and threatened that, well, if if you don't sign these deals, the oil companies are just going to pull out and, you know, do you want some money next week or not? And really shameful sort of bullying practices in many ways by Australia in that process and over the following years as, as deals were made and the sort of young leaders or the inexperienced leaders of East Timor were bullied, pressured, at one point agreed that to sort of placate the oil interests that they wouldn't do anything that would make the situation worse and 
a lot of skullduggery by Australia in the sense of holding back information about just how valuable the mineral, the petroleum resources were and really tough deals cut. And of course, in amongst all this, we even bugged the Timorese cabinet room so that we could listen in on their discussions so that we would nego- know their, their bottom line negotiating position. And Bernard Collery had been the lawyer for the East Timorese trying to help them in these battles, basically saying East Timor shouldn't be bound by deals that Indonesia did with Australia and should be able to cut fresh deals. It shouldn't have to be considered that it's adopted them. And he was involved in in taking Australia to the sort of different courts. I'll get onto that in a minute. Strangely, the guy who was involved in bugging the Timorese cabinet room sought and got permission to get legal advice and the government said, yes, you can go and get advice from Bernard Collery, who was acting for the East Timorese in the full knowledge of Australia. It just seemed they should have said to him, you can get legal advice, but not from that guy because he's involved in suing us on behalf of the East Timorese. Mm -hmm. But the last person that they should have let him witness K talk to was Bernard Collery. But anyway, they did. Anyway, there's an article from the John Manity blog, all of this is in the show notes, a guy called Ian Cunliffe, a very highly experienced, well-credentialed fellow, talking about this whole deal of Bernard Collery and basically saying that Collery had acted for the Timor-Leste against the Australian government over the bugging and other dirty tricks. Collery was instrumental in taking that dispute, which is extremely embarrassing to Australia. He was going to take it to the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. Collery favoured that Permanent Court of Arbitration because it would avoid Australia being publicly humiliated. So that was a good thing from Australia's point of view. Australia, however, sabotaged that arbitration because as soon as Collery left Australia for The Hague, they raided his home, seizing his documents and case files relating to the case that he was going there for as well as stuff to do with Witness K. And in amongst, so the book by Bernard Collery that he's written, Oil Under Troubled Water, doesn't have everything that he'd like to say about what's happened. But what he does point out is that, Joe, in these deals with the oil companies, the way it was framed by our trade officials was there's a huge reservoir of helium as well as petroleum. Joe, I'll give you one guess. How much, what percentage of the helium benefits the East Timorese in the wash-up? Take a guess. Take a wild guess. I I reckon all of it because there isn't any (laughs) and we get the oil instead. No, no, there's heaps of helium, like lots of it. So how much do you reckon the East East Timorese share of that is? Oh, well, he's worth worth money, so zero. Okay. How much do you reckon Australia's getting? Well, if they're getting zero, we'd get 100%. No, you would think so. But an obscure definition was used in relation to the definition of petroleum and resources, such as to exclude helium, so that no country gets the royalties from the helium 
Oh, that's pure profit for the oil companies. Pure profit for the oil companies involved. So, and the helium is such that it's potentially worth more than all of the other petroleum products in these fields. There's that much of it, and it's an increasingly valuable resource. Yeah. And neither East Timor nor Australia gets a single dollar from the helium. It's absolutely criminal, and Alexander Downer's fingers and Josh Frydenberg's fingers are all over it. And that's where we circle back to, Joe. If this National Anti-Corruption Commission can look at things retrospectively, first place, one of the places they really need to do, what they need to do, well, Bernard Collery's case has been cancelled by... Mark Dreyfus, so they're no longer pursuing him. Uh, somebody needs to sit down with Bernard Collery and say, okay, tell us everything you know, because there's a lot more that he knows. And it just, you know, not only did the East Timorese suffer and get a terrible deal on the normal petroleum products, but both Australia and East Timor get nothing from helium. Have I depressed you enough? Obviously not Tom, Don. Don in the chat room says helium is no laugh helium is no laughing matter. And you're saying, Joe, that's right, that would be nitrous oxide. Is that what laughing gas is? Nitrous yes. oxide. <laughs> Very good. It's quite a tale, that one. So Australia, certainly back in history, people like Sir Garfield Barwick, who had close ties with the minerals industry, comes out of this bad. Doc Effort comes out good. Gough Whitlam comes out as uncaring and Frydenberg and in particularly, who was the other one I just mentioned whose name I forget? God, what's his name again? Downer. Downer. Thank you, James. Alexander Downer. Really, this all needs to be examined. Was it incompetence? Was it something else? And plenty of work for somebody there. It's all complicated and you just have to feel really, really bad for our bullying of poor East Timorese who were basically... One of the most friendly neighbours helped us out in the wartime and and really deserved a lot better from us. So I, I there's a story. I knew What's someone it? who was a PNG hand. Mm-hmm. Fairly sure he was talking about oil reserves of PNG and he right. said that there was so much money going to come out of it that even with all the corruption, enough would be left over to change the infrastructure of the country. And it was, uh, yeah, that was the level of money that was going to be floating around. Yep. Uh, and it, you, you just wonder how much a country like East Timor would be changed mm. if they were seeing the royalties from this. Yeah. Yep. So it's a real shame, a real black mark on this country. And anyway, oil under troubled water, it's a bit of a difficult read. It's quite complicated. Even as I was trying in preparation for this podcast to check things and get it straight in my head it's not an easy read but anyway it's worth looking at so so anyway joe 902 if shay was here we would have kept her out of the shark tank i think we can close off and we'll be back again next week dear listener just because she's not here doesn't mean she's not a risk oh well that's true yeah we'll have to find out from landon whether the, the threat is still extant yeah true and we'll have to find out with scott if he can get his internet up and running and can join us a few times so we'll see what happens all right well we'll be back same 
bat time next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him. <laughs>